Sunday Morning Matinee is brought to you in partnership with The Christian Century, a magazine for progressive church leaders. Welcome to Sunday Morning Matinee, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. Today is a very special three and a half hour long episode of Sunday Morning Matinee so that I can complain about just how long Martin Scorsese's The Irishman is. Just kidding. Sort of. My name is Matt. Matt, Matt, Matt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Adam. I got to finish this movie. I'm still watching it. (laughs) I've been watching it for five days. It's... (laughs) It's it's a long one, and I've and I'm up against it here. Live so, live here on the show, we finish watching the here, movie. Gonna it. It's gonna be great audio, folks. Stay tuned. Grip your seat tightly. My name is Matt. I'm the pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas. And I'm Adam, and I'm the minister of Overbrook Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And today, in our first segment, justification by faith, I'm gonna ask Adam how the Irishman might help us think about life in the church and in the world. And in our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to offer up some specific ideas for what you might do with the Irishman for this next upcoming Sunday, which will be the third Sunday in Advent, December 15th. And in our third segment, Postludes, we'll take a second to share another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're reading, watching, or following. So, Adam, Martin Scorsese has gotten the band back together. Indeed. De Niro and Pacino on screen together for the first time since Heat. De Niro and Pesci for the first time since Goodfellas. Scorsese back making big, sweeping gangster epics in the vein of Main Street's Casino, The Departed, and making it for Netflix with the promise of huge budgets and few restraints. Honestly, that's about all I knew going into this thing. I had missed it in its brief theatrical run here in Austin, but I caught it on Netflix last night. And I knew I was going back to familiar territory, and I was happy to go spend a few hours visiting a cinema language and a cinema world with which I feel very familiar. Which meant I was a little surprised when the story of this movie surprised me. It's the based on a true story story of De Niro's Frank Sheeran, a union trucker in Philly who ends up friendly with the local mob and then in the inner circle of national union leader Jimmy Hoffa, played by Al Pacino. I, I wasn't surprised by the history nor was I surprised by the kind of movie tropes of a story about the fake glory and cheap death of mob life. But I was surprised to find a story about aging and memory and the sort of unglamorousness of real death, which is, I guess, a way of saying that I think in this three and a half hours movie, there's at least three movies. There's one which is a rise and fall mafia story that I think we've seen before. There's also sort of an American history melodrama that has a little bit of like Forrest Gump running through it as we get to see all these different events from the 50s and 60s and 70s play out in the background. And then there's a movie about an old man looking back on his life. And I wonder, Adam, which one of them grabbed you? Did they all grab you? And where did they take you? So this movie is is a lot, and I think you're right to recognize that there are really three major themes or stories or actual movies inside this movie because it, it runs like the length of three movies. Uh, I think 
the subjects of this movie are familiar, but it it wants to search out this new side to the genre. And I think the new side is that question about memory, about nostalgia, about the narrations uh, that we make about our lives. I think it's important to realize also that the, the movie is based on a book called I Hear You Paint Houses, which is mob euphemism for I Hear You Kill People. And Frank Sheeran is understood, at least in that book, as a fairly unreliable narrator. And I think that actually is a really interesting part of this because this is told in flashback. It's told as someone recounting their life. And you get the sense that this person um, is both sort of entranced with their place within history, but also maybe making some of it up. And so you never quite understand where like the uh, the fiction and the reality are sort of begin and end and how they're woven together. And I think when Scorsese focuses on those ideas and the ideas of memory, it becomes really an interesting movie. I mean, that's the movie that I wanted to watch. I think the last uh, the last hour of this movie is fascinating. I I love that. I think the first two hours really sort of traded in a lot of the same stock genre expectations that um, that all of his previous movies around the mob had already traded in. And I think that was that was a little bit boring to me to be to be. Frank, I, I like the performances. It's fun to see these actors act again, but I've seen them act. Um, and if I wanted to see them act in like superlative manner in a mob genre film, like they're not going to be better than The Godfather or Godfather 2. So um, so what's the point here? And I think as I look at Scorsese's films, he's maddening to me. Because there are movies that I, I really quite love, and and his his ability to like evoke performances out of actors is really special. Um, but there's a, the two of his most recent movies that help me sort of figure out what the contrast is and the, what maddens me about Scorsese are The Wolf of Wall Street and Silence. I hated The Wolf of Wall Street. I thought it glamorized this like 1980s dumb like investment banking type of masculinity and sure he may have been trying to undermine it but really the 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 hard thing with Scorsese is he's always up against that line where you don't know if he's glamorizing terrible behavior or if he's trying to undermine it and that's annoying to me silence on the other hand is a sort of deeply introspective picture it is very slow it is at times super boring it is beautiful to watch and it is a about someone's faith life. When the Irishman moves in the direction of silence, I really like it. When it moves in the direction of the Wolf of Wall Street, I find it frustrating. Um, the good thing about this movie is like the last hour moves in the direction of silence and like does it incrementally. So spoiler alert, the, the movie is a, about the assassination of Jimmy Hoffa in many ways by Frank Sheeran. But that happens, and there's at least 45 minutes after that. And that 45 minutes, I found riveting. And so I, as I try and sort of make sense of this movie, I'm a, I'm a little mm, hesitant, in part because of the sort of critical reception of this movie has been overwhelmingly positive. And I feel a little divided, because I think that there are mo- parts of this movie that are are 
the result of cinematic genius. And there are parts of this where I'm where I'm wondering, can can a movie be derivative when it is inspired by the filmmakers previous movies? Right. But then there's a part of me that and, and I, 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 I sense this a little bit as a Sunday morning regular preacher. There's a part of me that recognizes that no movie and no just like no sermon can be total into of it unto itself. Right. And that when I get up on Sunday morning in the pulpit, I am always, to some degree, banking on the the corpus of gospel and sermon that has been previously delivered in that pulpit to those people, some of it by me and some of it not. Uh, I'm, I'm banking on the corpus of a worship experience that precedes that preaching moment. There's a degree to which I, I, I can't take those 20 minutes as the, the opportunity to tell the entire story <clears throat> every week, there has to be some capacity to, to focus and hone and say, this is the corner of it we're looking at this week. And I, and, and I share your hesitation about this film and it comes from that place of, yeah, I thought that about halfway, maybe a little past halfway of this movie, um, Jimmy Hoffa gets out of a stint in prison. And at that point, the movie turns and becomes his attempt to regain the, the leadership of the union that he had before he went into jail uh, and the way in which he needs Frank to help him regain that power and the way in which by doing that, he is pushing against mob interests that are not necessarily on his side anymore. Um, so that those events conspire to lead to his demise. And then they conspire, of course, to lead to Frank's kind of reflection on um, his time in the union and in the mob and over the long slog of his life that follows. That hour and a half or so of filmmaking, I found absolutely compelling. Yeah, agreed. Um, it it's Pacino's best work in the film. It's De Niro's best work in the film. I could not take my eyes off the screen. That is, to, not to overplay the metaphor too much, the, that is the sermon that I wanted from this movie. And what I've been trying to figure out in the, in the time since I watched it was how much of the hour and a half to two hours before that did I need in order for that, that movie to have the weight and resonance that it had. And, and and I don't mean to suggest that the first two hours of this movie could, could go by in a two-minute montage. It's not that. There is something urgent and necessary there that you need to build up to make the rest of it have the weight that it has. But a little bit of me wanted to say, yeah, we've we've seen your previous work enough, right. we're familiar yeah. enough with this genre and this language we know the story enough that you can do a little bit of quick citation and reference to move us along, uh, to, to rely on our familiarity and our fluency uh, so that it, by the time we get to the meat of what you're trying to say, we haven't already begun to kind of just be weighted down by the scale of the thing. And and I'm gonna be honest. By the time we got there, I was I was a little weighted down. You're right. I was too. And but I think 
as I try and put my finger on, okay, what is the hinge that becomes interesting in that last hour, hour and a half? And I think you're right to recognize it's, it's when the two masters of Frank begin to diverge from right. each other, right? Yeah, absolutely. So it's, yep. you have his loyalty to Hoffa and his loyalty to the Buffalino, largely Russell Buffalino, who is the mob boss. Yeah, this is and Joe Pesci's character. They're moving, yeah. yeah, and they're moving in opposite directions. And they have, they have previously been teamed, right? So that they felt like they were a, 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 a triad that could actually get things done. And now Frank is feeling this sort of like overwhelming, in many ways, like tribulation, right? I mean, it's like he's getting pulled or he's getting ground yes. by these two people. And and I, I really think that this is part of De Niro's best acting in the movie is this is something that new that he provides to this mobster role that he hasn't previously, which is he's he feels lost, mm-hmm. right? Like there's there's a powerlessness that sort of you can see it and he's I mean he's really quite compelling in this moment because yeah. he feels like he feels sort of desperate to try and um try and resolve or reconcile these two masters that he's been serving and he's he's coming to terms that he can't um and that's actually a really interesting idea <laughs> and and to watch it play out not just um in Frank, but to see the the sort of contrast of of the Hoffa character and the Russell character between Pacino's sort of doing his Pacino thing, which is like Pacino's late in life has um, he's got a couple moves, they're good moves, but he's going to employ those moves. Yeah, and, I, I I I had a hard time with Pacino in this one, just and I love the yeah. man dearly, but it it felt like he was in a more caricatured movie than everybody else around him. And it, it, yeah, it didn't it, work for me all the time. It had a little too much Dick Tracy for me. It had a little bit too much Dick Tracy. Like, can I, oh, can I put it that way? <laughs> um, but, but it, it's over the top, right? He is sort of like incessantly petty and like, sort of pathologically petty about things and can't like get over it. And then you contrast that, which, the performance of the movie, as far as I'm concerned, which is Joe Pesci's performance, which is like incredibly understated, like very few words are spoken. He uses his face is incredible. I don't you know, he's doing something new with his role that he hasn't previously in Goodfellas or in other sort of mobster type roles. And so you have these two contrasting masters and it. I mean, I really like as I was watching it, I was I kept thinking of like that Christ when Christ says like you can't serve two masters, mm-hmm. and I was like, yeah, like this is this is what this movie is about. It's that you can't you can't do this. Like ultimately, even when you think that they're, uh, even when you think that they're aligned or that they agree, eventually, life's going to require you to choose. But it's also about kind of the, the contrast between the the kind of operatic uh, and, and gruesome nature of mob death that we have seen in all yes. these previous films, and and that Scorsese not just hints at, kind of plays with throughout this movie. One of the stylistic tropes in this movie is you you meet new character who is probably real person from American mafia history in the sixties and seventies, and then the screen will freeze. And Scorsese will give you a super title that says, you know, here's the name. And then when we've just met him and also 
this is how this person's going to die. And it will say, you know, shot six times in an alley, September 2nd, 1981. And we get this over and over. I mean, it's got to be eight, ten, a dozen times during this film of characters are introduced. And, and it's always in, or very regularly, it's in these very glamorous mafia settings. They're in the lush Italian steakhouse in Philly somewhere with right. the red velvet and the Manhattans and the red wine and these beautiful... Uh, little tumbler glasses and the huge stakes and and everyone's ha- looking in their finest suits and it's all very shiny and sheeny and you'll and then you get the introduction and it's you know dead in an alley uh, and this this is the recurring trope that in some ways is a, a a trope that distills some of what you get out of the tragic elements of Goodfellas or the tragic elements of Casino. Uh, the ways in which these huge, glamorous lives end in death. But what is so interesting about The Irishman to me is that it does not end in death. Right. It, it ends yep. in, in a retirement home. I mean, and, and I, I don't want to spoil too much, but it's also it begins in a retirement home. It begins with De Niro's character narrating this story to a sort of unseen audience, an unseen um interviewer or something of the sort in from a wheelchair in a retirement home many 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 years later and it comes back to that um time and again and but especially at the end after we see everyone around him die and after we see the the cost of this mob life for him and we see his kind of stubborn resistance to death in really interesting ways i mean he we, we watch in that last 45 minutes, we watch him go shopping for his own casket. Uh, we watch him talk about how, uh, he, how, how cremation is, is just not the thing because he doesn't want to forestall the possibility that um, his body would be needed for resurrection. Um, he, he, there is a, a chorus of, um, of refusal to to deal with the kind of regular bodily consequences of death that in some ways leaves him very alone. Uh, and, and, and that to me, and I think for you too, from what I'm hearing is where this movie gets most captivating and most interesting. And in addition to that, that, so he's telling the story and there are, there are two figures that end up showing up at the end of the movie. And one are, is the FBI Right. Who are who are asking him, they're like, Frank, everyone's dead. What are you holding on to your stories for? Like, just let them right. out. Let us right. have them right. so that we can get you, you know, who's not dead. It's the kids of Jimmy Hoffa. Like, right. they're not dead. So why don't you do it for them? A, a family you ostensibly loved. And then there's this priest who shows up and continually talks to Frank about remorse. And um, and with the movie, I think like thoughtfully leaves open is you don't know who he's telling the story to. And there are two options. He's he's either telling it to the FBI or he's telling it to the priest and who he's telling it to is going to give you a better indication of whether or not that's true or not, or whether or not this is actually a, like a story worth listening to. And I thought that like that, that, that narration and like its audience and who the audience is and how that's left open is a really fascinating decision. And it, because it puts into 
context how he's going to tell the story, who's going to be the, the hero of the story. And, um, and I think Scorsese is leaving out or, or is, is leaving out the possibility that maybe he's telling the story twice to the same people. And he's just telling the same story and that he lies to the priest or he lies to the FBI or he's telling the truth to both that I, I, I think you're right to recognize this is, this is a movie what, about what happens when you're, when you aren't whacked as they say. Right. Yeah. Um, and you have to live with yourself. And by the end of the movie, Frank Sheeran doesn't have a self necessarily to figure out how to live with. All he has is these stories, these recollections. Well, and there's one more character who um, makes that last 45 minutes so rich and resonant, and it's the character of his daughter. Yes. Uh, that, that we have to talk piece. about. This is an incredible thread through this film. Is it his daughter who, um, who has, we have watched sort of silently observe her father's behavior over the course of um, her growing up. Uh, she then, as an adult, is played by Anna Paquin. She has literally seven lines of dialogue, seven words of dialogue yeah. in the entire film. And yet it is her estrangement uh, from him that seems to be the the fulcrum that is driving his his sense of reckoning and grief and loss in that last 45 minutes of, of movie making. Uh, he goes to have a conversation with another one of his daughters who, who, who helps to give some context and explain the weight that they all felt as children in that household. Uh, but it, it is clearly, you know, the very, very last shot of the movie uh, after the, the priest has visited, um, they've had a conversation which may or may not be the conversation in which De Niro has laid out this whole story. It's clearly shot in a different space in this retirement home. Uh, the, the, the priest has left and um, and De Niro calls him back and asks him to make sure to leave his door just a little bit open. And so the last shot of the film is this door left just a little ajar with De Niro, the, the elderly De Niro um, sitting by himself and in the retirement center. Uh, this, of course, cannot be anything but like a, a major play with the the famous finale of Godfather. Where, Close the door, okay? Yeah, where, where Michael closes yeah. the door and keeps his family life away from his professional family life. Uh, and now the door is left a little bit open. And I, and I read that entirely as a door open in case his daughter comes by to visit. Um, and in case his daughter would ever want to seek the relationship that has been so long estranged. And, um, and, and I wondered whether there's even a, an unlikely and yet in my dreams idealistic audience for this film that the unseen person to whom De Niro's telling the story, could it ever even be her? Uh, that, hmm. she, that she has yeah. come finally to hear uh, his take on what this story was and some honest version of it, which would explain in yeah, some ways why she doesn't have any lines of dialogue because she was there for all of it. She, he doesn't need to tell her what she already said. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, because she's the only she's really the only one in the movie who can serve as that confessor because she sees it all. She already knows. Yeah. And so he cannot finally be honest with somebody because there's that. I mean, there's that terrible moment with the priest where she, he asks him, do you have any remorse? And he says, no. Right. Like I, I did what I did. Uh, yeah. You know why? Why hold on to any of that? And, um, 
but you can see that his relationship with his daughter is quite painful for him. And he, he does seem to be haunted by her stare. Not, I mean, she doesn't say anything. He just, she, um, she just sees and she watches. And I, I, that open door is, is obviously a, a reference to the Godfather. And, and I think the deep tragedy of the movie is that you've closed this door, but once you close it, you really can't open it again. Yeah, that's exactly right. So let's talk about the Netflix of all of this. Uh, what, what was it like? Yeah, let's, let's bang out some of the, the, the little parts here and there. What was it like watching this movie on Netflix for you? What, what was it? I mean, I, I, it played on big screens here in Austin, and I did not get to it because it is three and a half hours long. Uh, we said that part already. So I, I'm wondering, I mean, Scorsese has been uh, very famously in the press and in the public sphere, especially lately, about... Kind of the, he is a, a a member of the the old guard of how to watch movies, and there is clearly something important to him about the way in which we consume this media and the way in which we allow it to operate. Uh, he's very wistful for a time when movie makers that made smart, interesting, critical films like I think this is uh, for all of its mm-hmm. my faults for it. It's definitely not. Uh, it, it's it's definitely not cheap popcorn fluff. Uh, I know, and there's very few people who absolutely. could actually do this movie. And so, I, you know, we wrestle, but it's because we're holding Scorsese to his own standards. It's not like it's not anything less than that. That. So my question is: Did did watching it on Netflix work for you? And did it did it help you live into that call of? movies as cinema and all those big fancy capitalized words that go alongside it. Yeah. It's, I mean, I think part of the, to hear Martin Scorsese talk about movies also is to hear him sort of venerate them as a populist medium, right? Like it, it's important that it's a movie theater, that it's like, it's, it's five bucks to get into the movie for an, an incredible piece of entertainment. Right. I think that, that, populist side of Scorsese is working against his sort of auteur side, which is he wants he wants to control how people see it, but he's also interested in lots of people seeing it. And and the fact of the matter is, it's like I, I don't think that there's a studio on the planet that would have allowed him to make a three and a half hour movie. Well, Netflix like, did. I mean, they are a studio here, but yeah, yeah. yeah I, well, yeah. I suppose like but uh, like a major motion picture studio that's going to like try and do this with wide release. Right. Like that's that's operating under the old business model. I don't I don't think that they're going to allow this to happen um, and they're going to give him some notes um, at where, where he's going to cut it down. And I think the fact that Netflix gave him freedom and access was just too good to be true. And so and they allowed and they bankrolled it. Right. Like so there's this two million dollars. I mean, and this movie should win every Oscar for the rest of time for period set dressing. I mean, it, yeah, like the, the way in which they have recreated the trappings of 50s, 60s, 70s America and the little tiny pieces of set that show the passage of time in the background are just immaculate. Like, you can see where the money went, They're... man. It is amazing. Well, that and the character aging, right? Yeah. Like, so they, they, smooth out people's faces i mean de niro pesci and uh and pacino are all in their 70s late 70s right and they have to play 40 year olds um 
and and 50 year olds and i think the movie does a, a decent job with it the problem is is like they still move like 70 year olds yeah. Yeah, yeah. like they don't, they don't have a sort of liveness that you would expect of someone who's a sort of hired killer right like there's a moment where de niro has to go and like like kick someone in the face and stomp on someone's hand on a curb yeah. and he looks like yeah. a 70 year old yeah, doing it he, he does not does. look like he's a young yeah. man who, who like who could actually beat somebody yeah. up at that point and so i there's a part of me that just thinks like i guess this is this is the way to go i don't have any problem watching it on netflix i'm gonna say like but if you're gonna give me a three half three and a half hour movie to watch in my house i'm not watching it a to z like there's just no way like I have where I can carve out that much time or, or most people can carve out that much time and just sort of like start hit play, grab, grab some popcorn and a drink and just let it rush over you, like dim the lights in your house. I mean, I watched this movie over a couple of days, like I have like washing dishes, like gathering time here, gathering time there. And maybe that had an effect on the way that I would actually understand the movie. But I can't imagine that once you make a deal with Netflix, that that isn't part of the expectation of of watching the movie. Yeah, I struggled with it. I kept wondering in that first hour and a half where I just wasn't grabbed. I did find myself like picking up my phone and looking to see if if something had happened on Twitter in the last ten minutes. Like it's hard to resist those little bits of distraction. And once the film clicked in for me, it was easy to set that stuff aside. But I also did find myself wondering if I had gotten to the theater to watch this in person, would the opening of that film have, and by opening, I mean like the first movie of the movie, uh, if if it would have forced me into a, a, a more compelled relationship with it than, than I had as I, as it happened. That's a good question. I mean, I think, the the comp that we have is Roma of last right. year, and both you and I saw it in the mm-hmm. theater, and we're overwhelmed by the cinema mm-hmm. of it, right? By just the the filmmaking choices, and I don't know about you, but I feel like the movie theater still to me is one of those sort of sacrosanct places. I actually put my phone yeah, away. Absolutely. I don't look at my theater like like that's or and there aren't very many places in my life where I yeah. do that any longer. And, um, and so it, it might be that I'm missing something by having not seen it in an actual theater. I'm willing to admit that. And that might be the reason that there's a difference in the sort of critical reception of this and my own reception of this. That said, I feel like the vast majority of people who are going to see this movie are going to see it on their television yeah, and there's a responsibility to making your film in such a way that it befits the mechanism by which your film will primarily be seen and distributed. And I'm not sure. And I'm not sure that I'm not sure this entirely pulls that off. Right. Yeah. I mean, it it's the packaging is not best suited for the product. 
So we talked a little bit about some theology in this film related to its relationship with death and dying. Um, I'd be curious to hear other strands that pulled out from you. I, I did have this very churchy moment in this movie, which I quite enjoyed, which is that a substantial amount of the plot line in this film as Hoffa's reign unravels is based around meeting etiquette. I love this part. It's so, hilarious. So Hoffa goes for a sit down with a, uh, uh, with Tony Pro, who's one of the other uh, one of the the mob bosses that he's trying to navigate with, and uh, Tony Pro shows up 15 minutes late for the meeting. It's in Florida somewhere. Hoffa has come in a full full northeastern three piece suit. Uh, Jimmy Pro shows up in like shorts and a like a like a Hawaiian shirt, like Hawaiian shirt yeah. of some kind. Yeah, and, and Hoffa berates him for uh, a being late you're never supposed to be late and 10 minutes is the most amount of time that he is ever going to wait, wait for anybody and if it sounds like i've heard that di- line of dialogue a few times it's because it shows up <laughs> over and over and over again and he berates him for his dress and i felt like oh man this feels like a church moment like this is all the unwritten rules of your meeting that come to the surface uh and 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 no one is able to get to content because we are navigating etiquette in such kind of brazen ways. And I, I found that really fascinating and delicious. And I, I loved that part of this film and the way it ripples through Hoffa's fall. Yeah, and how it, it, it feels like a personal affront to him. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and it's generational, right? I mean, it's, it's like... It's generational. Right, this it's is not regional. how we did it. Yeah, this is not... These are not the rules. This is not how we do it. You're the young kid who doesn't know how this game was meant to be played. And when will you kids learn? I mean, it's all baked in there, right? Yeah, the amount of times that people say, well, you're from California, right. to me, <laughs> as a way to explain why I've dressed the way that I do at a meeting or why I have chosen to make a decision that I've <laughs> chosen to make is is very real. Um, I think additionally, like the church thing that and that stood out to me is the way in which Frank builds his identity on taking orders, right? Mm-hmm. That he finds his worth in his proximity to these two people who, who make decisions. So Russell makes decisions. Jimmy makes decisions. Frank gets things done. Mm-hmm. Um, and for most of his life, that feels like a real identity, but absent the two people who are making decisions, Frank is really struggles to make decisions, right? He, he can't, he's like struggles. He wants a coffin. He has to make all of these decisions late in life. And he, it, and it's it's a real struggle for him. And I think for me, the temptation of being a minister in a church is to be the one to make all the decisions and expect everyone to do it. And at least in, in our particular denomination, there are lots of checks and balances to prevent exactly that from happening. That said, there are people in my in my life and in my congregation who just want to take decisions and find that to be a really valuable thing in their life. And I have to continually tell myself to like actually freedom allows them to make decisions. And that releasing of power of the ability to make decisions is actually the gift that you give people (laughs) who only want to make decisions. And so I I've been thinking a lot about that in in my own work, which is 
how do I support people into effective and wise decision making and not always be the one who has to make the decision on their behalf? Because in some ways, by making their decision on their behalf, you give them an identity, but it's a hollow one. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful and real way of thinking about the folks that we pastor with and minister with and the way in which I think De Niro's character really helps uh, shed some beautiful light there. Uh, I think it's a good place also for us to stop and pause and pivot. Oh, we are grateful for our partnership with the Christian Century as we do this show. We want to guide your attention to the great work they are doing. Stephanie Paulsell has just written a piece on reading Toni Morrison in Advent, which is an easy way to get me to read something. Stephanie Paulsell, Toni Morrison in Advent. We are in. If you are listening to this show and don't yet subscribe to The Century, Sunday Morning Matinee listeners can get a free trial magazine subscription. For more information, visit christiancentury.org slash podcast offer. All right, Adam, let's move on to preaching. This segment is called Preaching to the Choir. We are looking at the lectionary passages for December 15th, the third Sunday in Advent. We have waters breaking forth in the wilderness in Isaiah. We have the Magnificat in Luke, and we also have Jesus's reply to John's anxious questions in Matthew's gospel. Go and tell John what you see and hear. Adam, as you look at these passages and think about this movie, what stands out to you? Frank's daughter, Peggy, who gets very few lines, sort of serves, I think, as the conscience of this movie. And she does it not with some sort of massive conflict at the end where she gets to tell the truth about her father to his face. There is no reconciliation or resolution. There is no cathartic moment of emotion in this movie. There's a moment where Frank wants to see his daughter and she just walks away. He goes to her workplace and she leaves. I think Peggy is one of those um, one of those people who sees and hears. So in, in Matthew's gospel, John the Baptist is in jail and he's anxious, right? Because he has been trumpeting the power of this Messiah. He has proclaimed Christ as the, the son of man. And now he's anxious, he's in jail, and he sends some of his disciples to Jesus and says, look, remind me again, are you, are you the one? And Jesus says, well, tell John what you see and hear. And I, I think it's Jesus saying, like, it's not just that we take this on simple faith. Um, a little bit like what, what he says to Peter later when Peter proclaims him as Messiah. He says, look, flesh and blood didn't show you this to you, but the Spirit of God. Like, something is revealed to you. It's not that you just make this leap and it makes sense. You actually, like, you get to see and hear. There are, you use your eyes, you use your ears. What do you see? And I think that there is a seer in this movie. There is someone who watches in this movie, and it's Peggy. And what's interesting to me is that she watches not just to see the good things that might be like sprouting up, but she sees like the terrible things that her father's doing. Um, and I think that's what happens. When you do watch and see, when you look for the work of Christ in the world, when you look for the work of the Holy Spirit in the world, inevitably you're going to find terrible things that are happening because 
most of the time that's what happens in the world like terrible things are happening and so if you are watchful if you keep awake as advent instructs us to do inevitably you're going to see terrible things happen but i also think that in my experience and in the life of christ so often it's by looking at those terrible things that you see the revelation of god amid those terrible things so you you have to look at them in order to see god i mean there's a the German romantic poet uh, Friedrich Holderlin says, there where the danger is, the saving power also grows. And it's easy to deceive yourself, like Frank does, that he's just taking orders, that he's doing what he's told. He's constantly refusing to see and hear, but his daughter is not. She looks. And my prayer as I watch this movie, and the, the answer I don't ever get, is that maybe in the looking she saw something that was worth seeing. So that's where I'm at, Matt. What about you? I think that's beautiful. And I'm in the same passage in the second half of that passage, the disciples go away and Jesus turns to the crowd and he starts talking to the crowd about their experience of John. And, you know, he says, what did you go out to the wilderness to look at a reed shaken by the wind? What did the, what then did you go out to see someone dressed in soft robes? Look, those who wear soft robes are in Royal palaces. What did, what then did you go out to see a prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet, uh, this is the one about whom it is written, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist. Yet the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. I think there's something really interesting in this film and in, in that text about Jesus reminding the crowd that John the Baptist, who is this major figure, who is this major political figure, who is this kind of lowercase m messiah figure who is this celebrity of of the, the moment is also just a dude um that there's right. th he is both reminding them of john's critical importance in the theological story that's happening and also reminding him that the the least in the kingdom of heaven are still greater than that dude who you love and there's something, I think, beautifully humbling about that. I think about it in the context of the Irishman, because as we see it a couple of moments, Sheeran has a kind of savior complex. Um, yeah. and, and we see it most vividly in the kind of formative sequence in that relationship with his daughter, which is when she's very young and she's been um, hit or hurt or shoved in some way by the manager of the shop where she works. And Frank gets that information out of her and then drags her back down to the shop and beats the crap out of the manager while she's watching. This is left untalked about for three hours of movie making until it comes back at the end when Frank finally gets to talk with one of her sisters who talks about how terrified they always were of what he might do if, um, if and when they found out, he found out that anything had happened to them. And because he had this, this kind of savior complex where he needed to go and he talks about how he wants to, wanted to make their childhoods safe and that he, he didn't want them to have to see any of the dark stuff that he saw. But in the process of trying to save them from the world, he broke that relationship and broke something really valuable. And it, and it kind of reminded me in this passage in both places of the sense that like 
none of us can tear through this world on our own, Mm. right? None of us get to be the Messiah. And Jesus telling the crowds, like, look, he's not the Messiah, is also a way of saying, like, y'all aren't the Messiah either. None of you get to do this. None of you uh, are, are singular and strong enough to manage all of the burden and all of the pain and all of the brokenness of the world on your own. There's an implicit turn there, which is Jesus saying it me, right? Which is Jesus saying, yeah. I, right? Like I, I'm the one who can, but I'm, I'm in this case, not also, not just fully human, but also fully divine. This is stuff that on, on, only God can deal with singularly. And everyone else gets to rely on Jesus and gets to rely on one another. And I feel like there's a little bit of a cautionary thing for Frank there of like, he has lost his ability to have other people to rely on with. Um, and you see it in his kind of inability to connect with his priest, though he definitely wants to. You see it in his inability to connect with his daughters, that there's something broken there in his capacity to um, to deal with this uh, in togetherness. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, in addition to that, there's, Scorsese is making not a very, not a thinly veiled critique of the ways in which war seeded the mob. Yeah. Right. That, that the, the trauma that we put people through via war sort of gives people the type of distance to kill people with without conscience and and the and, and that built-in patterning of taking orders that you talked about already a little right. bit it, it creates soldiers who then need a war uh, and this becomes the new war it becomes the new war and i think like both this this matthew 11 passage but also the the magnificat and luke and even the isaiah passage are really trying to fight against that impulse which is to say like there there is a moment that is coming where the the presence of God is going to radically disrupt these pipelines, these sort of revolutions of creation of violence and different things like that. I mean, and I think that was also really interesting to me is that like Scorsese is noting like, look, and and these wars continue to show up, right? They show up on the television screen, right? They show like the Bay of Pigs. They show various different things from Vietnam. They show Sarajevo in the very last like portion of the movie about all of these places where like worldwide conflict are going on and people are killing without it with like with impunity. And, um, and I think he's both saying like, of course we have a mob, right? Like, because the whole world is like, we have a bunch of warlords that sort of pose as nation states. Um, that said, I think something like the Magnificat, what I like about it is that it's told in that heiress tense where it's like ostensibly it's past tense, right? Like, right. so in the Magnificat, like, God has done these things, but it's also like present and future tense all wrapped up right. into one. It is this sort of like, like the, the doneness of the done, like from yeah. the, the coming doneness has so thoroughly permeated the past that it, it, it's, um, that we have to rethink the past. And, um, I think Scorsese has done a good job of showing how cycles of violence show up in our lives. And how could they continue to perpetuate themselves? I think it's the job of the gospel to say, and here's how we halt that perpetual cycle. Mm -hmm. And I think these texts lend themselves to those conversations pretty well. 
Yeah, the Advent text absolutely should be the, the very ripest ground for that. All right, I think we should move on. Yeah, well, we, I mean, we only have two and a half hours more of podcast time. So, <laughs> you know, I, I, I want to respect our audience's limited attention span. I think this should be our new policy. Each podcast should be, will be exactly as long as, as, long the, as the movie that we've watched. <laughs> I think yeah. it's dangerous precedent, but I think you're right. We should we, we should move on. All right. So this is our last segment. It's called Postludes. It's just a chance to get another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're watching or following. Matt, what's your postlude? Uh, so by the time this podcast drops, uh, we will have just, well, I will have just watched the, the series finale of Silicon Valley. Uh, Silicon Valley is the HBO sitcom uh, from Mike Judge, who created Office Space. It's been running for six years now about a startup in Silicon Valley that is tried to make its way and get big. It uh, has definitely been a satirical take on Silicon Valley culture and Silicon Valley workplace culture. It can be in classic Mike Judge style, very grotesque and very lewd and also very biting. Uh, and it has been, for most of its runtime, uh, a show that is about the kind of lovingly satirizing the, the lifestyle in the Valley and the kinds of characters that run through the tech world. But I'm very interested in the pivot that this show has made over this season and in some degrees last season, as we as a culture have watched the shift from Silicon Valley as a kind of a, a culture that is worth satirizing, even as it produces products that we all find to be incredibly useful to now being a place that creates products that we have serious ethical questions about. Uh, and, and we now increasingly have serious ethical questions about the, the, the value of Facebook, the value of Twitter, the value of um, these communication tools that uh, are, have huge global consequences. And I find that Silicon Valley, the show, has made this very interesting turn as it has um, begun to ask really interesting ethical questions about the entire nature of Silicon Valley as kind of a moment and an economic and technological project. And that is putting in really kind of academic speak, uh, a show that is still in many ways quite dumb. Uh, and, and, I, and I love the fact that it manages to still be quite dumb, but also be grappling with the, the change in scene in the turf on which it has planted itself. And so if, if you started the show and watched the brilliant first season and then fell off somewhere in the, the cycles of up and down that they could never quite figure out how to navigate, I, I invite you to come back and return. You don't really have to catch up. You can just kind of pop on the, the, the final season and, and get the gist of it. But I, I think that they've done some really interesting work and I'm, I'm sad to see them go, but also really excited for, um, for, the, for the chance to spend one more little bit with them. That's what I've got. Uh, I've, I've loved it. I've been, I haven't watched this most recent episode, but I'm excited to see how they try and land this plane. Yeah. Um, uh, so I think for me, um, my post loop connects with yours a little bit, which is I'm more keenly aware of the ways in which social media and, um, and the way in which mass media is working nowadays has affected my ability to read. So I have increasingly been reading things that are just feel that feel bite-sized, whether it is, um, 
whether it's like little Twitter things that lead me to an article that I read for five minutes and then maybe never finish or blog posts or different things like that. And I found myself kind of struggling to like maintain attention over in a sustained argument over the length of a book, <laughs> um, which is which was disconcerting yeah. to me. And I just I really didn't confess it to myself to say uh, that this was a problem. And then I started to see my son read. And so he's he's learning to love reading and he's reading more and more. And I went to a parent teacher conference recently and um, and the teacher said, you know, he would just keep reading if I let him. And I was like deeply convicted mm. by this. And so I made a point to try and read a book, which sounds like a crazy thing to say. But but it was very right, real. Right, right. Like, no, it I was like, it. OK, I have to, I'm going to do this. And I, I picked up Philip Pullman's like he's doing this dust trilogy. I really like the his dark material stuff. And I was already watching it. So I was like, oh, I'll see what's next. And I picked it up. And I have to say, like, the first quarter of the book was, like, incredibly hard to read, not because the book was bad, but because I was just out of practice. And then I started, like, mm -hmm. getting back in practice. And then I was like, hey, this is great. <laughs> I forgot how awesome this was. <laughs> so this sounds weird as a postlude, but um, this is my sort of full-throated endorsement of reading, which I, I, I'm – scared that the way the media works nowadays that we are going to get away from reading and i'm i have realized the need to be more vigilant in actually reading and spending time with an author over a sustained period of time that's my post that's beautiful thank you i'll take it as a good call to advent discipline <laughs> And that about wraps it up for this episode. If you like the show, be sure to leave a rating on iTunes or come to the show page and tell us how we got it wrong. We love your feedback. Drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter or at the show page at sundaymorningmatinee.com. Special thanks, of course, to our friends at the Christian Century and to the fine editing skills of Derek Weston. Our music today was composed by Bobby Brinkerhoff. Big thanks to him and his band, Fish in the Backseat. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Matt. <laughs>